thank you that you sent your son, your precious son, to be the head of a new humanity. All of us, every one of us, dead in Adam. And like the man of dust, so will we be dust. But to be in your son, to be in the man from heaven, is to be like him someday in his resurrection. Thank you that our hope is unwavering. It cannot change. He sits at your right hand, interceding for us. And as he is, so will we be. Oh God, would that be our hope? Make it so, even tonight. And it's in the precious name, the matchless, undying name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. We're in John 12 tonight. If you've got a Bible, open it up. It is going to help for you to be able to see the text for yourself. We're in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 24. Next Sunday, we're celebrating Easter. So that's the day when we're remembering that Jesus Christ, on a Sunday, stepped out of a tomb, unable to die again. That's what we're celebrating. Almost 2,000 years ago, we're going to celebrate that next Sunday. A week before that, the Sunday before his resurrection, he entered into Jerusalem. If you grew up in church, you may have called it Palm Sunday. It's because the people were waving palms around as Jesus was coming in. They're saying, he's the king. He's the king. So for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus being the king. And next week, we're going to talk about him being the life. And we're in the book of John, and then we will get back to 1 Timothy, I promise. So if you grew up in church, you've heard of Palm Sunday, maybe the kids in church got to wave palm branches around. What's happening is that Jesus is marching into the city, and there are people crying out, waving palm branches, saying, this is the king, the king of Israel has come into Jerusalem. And less than a week later, they crucify him. They crucified him because he was not the king they wanted. Even though he was the king they needed, and in a great twist, only one that God could have planned, in their rejection of Jesus as king when they killed him, That was what established his kingdom over all the worlds. And that's what we're going to see tonight. So John 12, verses 12 through 24. Let's read it together. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him 
and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. There's a disconnect in this passage between who the crowds think that Jesus is and who he actually is. Details are right. They both think that he's the king. They think that he's a king who's going to bring them earthly military victory, success, and riches. And he's not. Not yet. First, he is a king who conquers our sin, conquers our hearts so that we love him, and makes us holy. That's what this king is out to do. And the reason that this is important, even if you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember, is because when life gets hard, you get COVID for the second time, your parent dies, your vacation gets ruined, you fail the class, you think, Jesus, I thought that you were the king. I've been following you my whole life, and I thought you were the king, and this happens to me? That's a misunderstanding of what this king is ruling to do right now, which is to make you holy, even in our suffering. So here's what we're going to see. Here's the outline. The first section, we're going to look at who the crowds thought that Jesus would be. That's the first section, who the crowds thought he would be. And then we're going to look at who Jesus understood himself to be. And then finally, we're going to see that verses 20 through 24 get to the heart of the difference between those two. So who the crowds thought he would be, who Jesus understood himself to be, and then we're going to look at the heart of the difference in verses 20 and 24, 20 through 24. So who the crowds thought that Jesus would be, this is mostly in verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So Hosanna, that's what the people are yelling, it means save us, save us, come to save us. They're quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. This is a psalm that all Jews would have known. It was sung multiple times in the temple every year. This is what it said, verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And just in case we're not clear on who they think Jesus is, they add, even the king of Israel. So, the Jews who are lining the streets to Jerusalem think that Jesus is the king. And they think that he's going to save them. And we need to ask, save them from what? If you're a member in our church, that means you've done an elder chat where you've sat down with one of the pastors and we've asked your story. It's not a theological exam. We just want to know, how did you come to know Jesus? And do you know what the good news of Christianity is? And sometimes along the way, people will say, yep, and that's when I was seven, that's when I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And we'll say something like, what did he save you from? And that's not because we're trying to be cute or annoying. It's because that makes all the difference. What you think he came to save you from is the difference between belief and unbelief, life and death. And we'll see that in this passage. These people, you can see it here, they think he's the king. They think he's come to save them. And five days later, they will have a hand in putting him on the cross because they did not believe him, even though they thought he was a king and a savior. They wanted to be saved from something other than he wanted to save them from. So we, we get an idea of what they think about Jesus or who they think he is, just a hint from the fact that they're waving palm branches. So in the Bible, Leviticus, Palm branches, they're a way to celebrate. You can wave palm branches around, lift them up high. It's a way to celebrate. It happens at the Feast of Tabernacles. It comes to be associated with Jewish freedom. So in between the Old and the New Testament, one of the Jewish rulers, Simon Maccabees, he has a great military victory when he's coming back into the city. People are waving palm branches for him as a victorious military leader. The Jews are going to revolt against the Romans just a few years after Jesus dies and is raised from the dead. And the way that they commemorate their revolt is by making coins and stamping palm trees on them. So that's how they say, we're Jewish and we're fighting back. When Rome finally crushes the Jews, they commemorate their victory by making coins and stamping palm branches on it. Which makes me think that this crowd believes Jesus is coming for military victory. That's not the only reason. John 6.15, earlier in this book, Jesus hides himself because the crowds are going to make him king by force. So this is John 6, 15. Listen to this. Perceiving then 
that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the crowd wants to take Jesus. They want to overthrow the leaders and make him king by force. They've seen him do these miracles. They've seen him heal people. That would be really helpful in battle. And Jesus doesn't want that. This is part of what the Pharisees are afraid of when they think of Jesus. So this is John 11, just probably a page over in your Bible. John 11, verses 47 through 48. Listen to how the Pharisees talk to each other about Jesus. They've decided they're going to kill him. And this is what they say. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the Pharisees are afraid if Jesus gets established as king in Jerusalem, the Romans are going to fight back and crush the Jews. These people were expecting military victory. They were occupied by foreign occupiers. And that's what they were expecting Jesus to save them from. And they were wrong. So here's who Jesus understands himself to be. All of this is going on. The crowds are saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king! And the text says, Jesus gets a donkey. So look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So we know from other gospel accounts that Jesus did this on purpose. He intentionally goes, finds a donkey, and rides it into town in order to fulfill this prophecy that was made about him 500 years before. So this is from Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11. You can just listen to this. Zechariah 9, prophesying about Jesus. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that's in Israel, and I will cut off the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. So on purpose, Jesus gets a donkey. That's what you ride when you're bringing peace. Fulfilling a prophecy about a humble king who will speak peace to the nations. The Jews wanted a king who would bring war to the nations. What the people wanted and what Jesus was bringing were completely incompatible. 
Just consider the moment. The people are worked up. They're occupied by a foreign power. Consider how dangerous this is, how explosive it is. They're shouting, the king is here. The king is here. He's here. And Jesus gets on a donkey to show that he's come to bring peace. This should astound you. The people are cheering, king, king, save us. Verses 36 and 37 of this chapter. If you've got a Bible, just scan your eyes over. It's probably one page. He's entered Jerusalem now. The crowds are surrounding him. They're listening to him teach. And verse 36 says this. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them talking about the crowd. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. These people thought he was the king. They thought he was going to save them. And John tells us they didn't believe. This is a warning. Just because you say that Jesus is your Lord, your King, and your Savior doesn't mean you really know him as the King and Savior that he is. Some people think about theology and they think, "Mm, I don't want to do that. I don't like getting into the details, the specifics. But the details and the specifics make all the difference between life and death here. These people could say, yes, Jesus is the king. These people could say, he's our savior. And they didn't know him. Take Jesus in the way the Bible reveals him to be. You can trust something that you call Jesus that isn't the real Jesus. Imagining someone with a beard who wears Jewish robes, you call him Lord and Savior, you pray to him, you call him Jesus, doesn't make him the real thing. That's the warning. You can know the real Jesus. I don't want you to think you can't know him. You can know the real Jesus. That's what this is for. And it makes all the difference that you're following the one who reveals himself to us here. Verses 20 through 24 get us to the heart of the difference. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So Greeks means they're not Jewish people. It's not that they're Greek-speaking Jews. This is, they're not Jewish. 
They've come to worship at Jerusalem, but they're Gentiles. They're people like you and me. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So notice, there's something about Gentiles, non-Jews, approaching Jesus that signals to Jesus that it's time to die. It wasn't the crowd cheering that he's the Messiah, the king. You would think he's riding in on a donkey. They're going, he's the king. Save us, king. Save us, king. And it's not after that that Jesus says it's time to be glorified. It's when non-Jews come to him and they want to see him that Jesus says it's time. So what is it? What is it about the Gentiles coming to him that triggers to Jesus it's time? Let's look at verses 23 and 24 more closely. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So like a seed has to fall into the ground and be buried before it's going to produce a crop, produce any fruit, Jesus is saying, I must fall into the ground and be buried before I am going to bear a crop of the nations coming to me. Think about what Jesus' death does. His death pays for our sins, provides forgiveness for us so that we can be reconciled to God. Jesus' death does that. Jesus' death puts an end to the Jewish law something we take for granted, so that you and me can come directly to him by faith. Jesus' death does that. It's Jesus' death that purchases the Holy Spirit for us so that we can have help and fellowship, happy fellowship with God. It's Jesus' death that does those things. So play... Play a little thought experiment with me. Imagine that Jesus didn't die. Imagine that the crowds are shouting, the king is here, save us, king, save us. And Jesus comes riding in on a war horse. The crowds are ready. They, they get arms, they overthrow the Roman rulers. Jesus gra grabs, gathers a bigger and bigger army. He conquers all the known world. Jesus is king. He'd be king. King over all the nations. But what would that kingdom be like? Yes, he would be king over all the peoples. But those he is king over would still get sick. They would still get old. They would die. Their sin would not be forgiven, and they would not be reconciled with God, and they would perish forever. 
That's not the kind of kingdom Jesus came to establish. King Jesus would reign in that scenario, but so would sin and death. And in that kingdom, Jesus would rule our bodies by force, but he would not rule our hearts. And that is exactly the kind of king he intends to be. What Jesus cares about as king is conquering our sin and ruling our affections so that we can know the joy and life that is only found in his love. That's what he's first doing in his kingship. The territory that Jesus intends to rule first is our love, our hearts, before he rules any land. Some masters will chain their animal to keep it close by, but some animals so love their masters that they don't need a chain to stay near, and no chain could keep them closer. One is bound from the outside by force, and the other is bound by a heart that loves. And that is the kind of rule Jesus intends to establish over all the nations of the world. And he's the only one who could do it. He's not going to rule like a foreign occupier. He's going to rule over the nations by winning them into his father's family. That only happens by his death. And that's why when the Gentiles approach him, it triggers in Jesus' mind, it's time. He is not just going to be their king from the outside, though he could have been. He's powerful enough. He must fall like a seed into the ground, and only then will a crop of nations whose sins are forgiven and whose hearts can enjoy him forever will grow. That's how his kingdom spreads. So the, the Jews wanted a king who would decimate unholy nations. And Jesus came to die for those nations to make them holy. We, gotta, we have to be totally clear on the kind of rule that Jesus is establishing right now. He is not coming right now for military victory, riches, power, or success. He is not coming to give you success in this life. In fact, success may be an obstacle for you getting what Jesus is after in your life. He's coming to make people holy, forgiven, transformed in their hearts. That's why he died. So, Let's put these side by side and test yourself here. Test yourself. The Jews wanted temporal, that means worldly success, right now. And Jesus is not bringing it right now. They wanted land, victory, riches, now. And Jesus came to forgive their sins, reorder their worship, change up their loves so that they could know him and trust him with all that they are. And, and what I'm pleading with you is, want Jesus to do that 
more than you want him to do anything else. He wants to change your priorities. He has come to change the things that you love. He's come to change your goals in life. He's come to change the way you do hospitality, the way you share your things, to do it like him. He's come to change the way you use your money because your priorities and your loves have changed. He's come to change your entertainment. He's come to do those things because he wants to make you holy, because he wants to make you happy. That's what our king is after right now. Someday he's going to come back and he's going to conquer all things. He has that authority. The Jews aren't wrong by calling him a king. He has the authority. But right now, he is forgiving hearts and changing them. When we die, some of us will have less money than we have right now. And that's not a problem with Jesus' kingship. All of us are going to have less health than we have right now when we die. And that's not a problem with Jesus' rule. Because what Jesus is after is to change our hearts so that we love him with all we are. We will not conquer Rome or whatever it is in this life. We will become more like Jesus. That's what he died to do. And remember, that's not just what he did, died. Remember, that's the kind of king that he is. He's the kind of king who did not take the easy route and climb a war horse to conquer the world. He suffered more than anyone, the king. The king who has rights over the whole world. That king became nothing. And he did it willingly to forgive our sins. He knew that to be a king who would make us happy forever, he must make us holy forever. And he must die to do that. And like a seed that falls into a ground, the crop is great. And his death is still producing a crop, still, even today. Simply by trusting this Jesus, this kind of king who lays down his life so that we can know his life, He's producing a crop even today simply by believing. Would you? Would you trust him? Not just trust his priorities as your king, but trust the kind of king that he is. If this is what he does to establish his rule, will he not be kind in making us like him? He will. He dies to make us happy by making us holy. And just to close, notice he calls that his glorification. He says, now it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what he means is it's time to die. Because if you want to know the glory of this king, what he's really like, you see it most clearly 
and that he lays down his life for those he loves. Let's pray. We praise you, Jesus. Who is like you? No one. You laid down your life so that your rule might be established not in force over unwilling bodies, but you laid down your life for your enemies to forgive their sins so that they might have the pleasure of knowing you and enjoying you forever. Who is like you? Lord, would you help us as your people not despise your rule now, to not despise your priorities now for us, but in our suffering and in our hardship and whatever comes that we would know you are in charge and what you are after is our holiness. And would we trust not just your priorities, but who you are? You're a king who's ruling those he has suffered most for. So help us to trust you with all we are. You are good. We praise you. Would you help us trust and praise you now? It's in your precious name we pray.